everybody. Tyler Smith here with another More Than One Lesson mini-sode. I hope everybody had a great Christmas, and I hope everybody is uh, anticipating a happy new year. I don't usually care about New Year's because I don't drink. Uh, I remember there's a there's a, a comedian and podcaster named Pat Francis that I know who uh, has said that uh, New, Year's, uh, new Year's Eve is the first disappointment of the new year. And uh, I, that's usually how it is for me. I usually don't do anything. Um, but uh, but yeah, I ho- but don't let that keep you guys from having fun. Uh, I'm just going to be sitting alone in my house. So uh, Josh, my co-host Josh is here. Hi, everyone. How was your Christmas? Oh, I don't know. Okay, we're recording this bef- uh, a couple weeks before Christmas at this point. Um, but uh, so we don't know how our Christmases went. I assume they went swimmingly. But uh, but we've got somewhere to be. We're rather, rather you have somewhere to be. So uh, let's just get this over with because we are talking about <laughs> the best picture of 1956, Michael Anderson's Around the World in 80 Days. Now, I wrote down other films that Michael uh, Anderson has directed. He directed Logan's Run, and he directed Orca, the really? Killer Whale. The Killer Whale. Yes. A film that I enjoy more than I should. Uh, I first saw it when I was a kid because I'm a big fan of Jaws, which I think might have been the impetus to make Orca, the Killer Whale. Um, but yeah, so it's based on the book by Jules Verne. Uh, it, was a, it was written by a number of... Uh, number of writers i'm not going to list them here mm-hmm. the film stars everybody uh notably david niven and then uh content is that how you Kantenfloss? say yeah, yeah something like that uh and it's just it's about this uh british gentleman uh in the late 1800s who makes a a, a wager that he can go around the world in 80 days um and he just goes from place to place and encounters different people and that's what the movie is yeah this is my first time seeing it. And I just rewatched it because it's been a long time since I've seen it. Enough so that I had forgotten. Like, I forgot the bullfighting scene. And I'm like, if I forgot that, then I don't remember this movie. <laughs> yeah. The bullfighting. So this movie is three hours and one minute. The bullfighting scene, I think, is two hours and five minutes long. <laughs> um, no. Okay. So here's the deal. I will say my my response because it took me a moment. I think I I think I texted you. <laughs> I, I was wondering at what point it hit you. Yeah, just this is a film that has that has not aged well, but not in the same way that like Easy Rider hasn't aged well. This hasn't aged well because it is no longer necessary. I think so. The film is shot in, I don't know if it's officially CinemaScope, but it's very widescreen. Yeah. At a time when widescreen wasn't, ne- it was fairly new. Mm-hmm. It's shot in color at a time when color is fairly new. Yeah. And it's shot in Spain. It's shot in, you know, uh, in India. In India. In, was it Hong Kong that they're in? Yeah. You know, it's shot all around the world in 1956 where I don't think I don't think international travel was as common then as it is now. And I don't think it's as easy as then as it is now. Definitely not. And so I think there were audiences not think, I know there are audiences that were probably never going to go around the world and this gave them the opportunity to do so. Yeah. 
No wonder the bullfight ta- the bullfight scene is so long because people are never going to see a bullfight, mm-hmm. and this might be their first opportunity to see it in widescreen in beautiful color. Uh, there are shots, you know, that ta- where the camera's mounted to the front of a train, yeah, and you see or on uh, the back of an elephant, yeah, and exactly, and you see like these these broad landscapes and you see like these uh, this there's an epic quality and i realized like this is a travel log this is basically planet earth yeah uh of the 1950s yeah and between the various kinds of movies we've had since then the various types of documentaries the various types of tv shows not to mention travel itself this movie is not necessary anymore but in 1956, not only was it necessary, it was an exciting new thing. Yeah. Once I hit on that, I became a bit more forgiving of the film. Mm-hmm. It's still not a satisfying film to me, uh, narratively or anything like that. But um, but I'm willing to, and it's it certainly is not essential by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But that helped me understand what it is or what it was meant to be. And when you think of it that way, the spectacle is more important than anything else, which is why the, the story is, I I feel like I've read the book as a kid or something, or at least an abridged version of it or something. And it seems like there was more happening. Uh, I'm sure there would be, it would would have to be. This story feels paper thin. The the whole thing where, where this uh, detective suspects that, Phileas Fogg, our main character, has robbed the Bank of England. Yeah. No one could care any less about that. And yeah. the story just totally fizzles out when they finally, they're trying to catch him, trying to catch him. Then they catch him. And then in like two minutes later, the detective comes in and says, well, I'm so sorry. turns out you were innocent. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's it, like fizzles to an end. It ultimately wound up being a situation where that whole storyline is meant to simply delay the character. So he might not win his bet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it would have been more interesting if he had robbed the Bank of England and this was actually just a way for him to, you know, get away yeah. uh, and have nobody suspect him for leaving. Yeah. And he never, it's like, oh, I never, I, I lost my bet. It looks like I won't be going back to England. I guess I'll just be staying here in Venezuela where there's no extradition treaty. And then he puts on his sunglasses real slow and it's like, <laughs> ow. Um, but uh, yeah, so that the the story for the most part is paper thin yeah. the characters aren't super well defined the the princess auda if that's her name definitely not well defined that's such a strange character like yeah. and played she by has, shirley MacLaine, like one of the best actors actresses of yeah, her generation yeah she's a good actress but first of all she's playing an indian woman which doesn't yeah. make any sense second of all we she she's rescued from being uh, uh sacrificed yeah. and there's one there's one like minute long scene of, uh, of, uh, exposition after that, where she says that she never really knew her husband yeah. and then she just kind of like tags along for the rest of the thing. Yeah. And does not, and contributes nothing. Yeah. She's almost pointless. How do you say, uh, uh, Contenflas's character's name? Uh, Passepartout. Passepartout. Yeah. Um, he's probably the most dynamic character. He's, he's really the star of the movie. Yeah. Like David, it, and, and at the time he was, I, I looked this up. He was the richest movie star in the world at that time. Yeah. He was, he was a very, uh, a very big deal. Yeah. And which is, I feel like that's a gap in my film knowledge is that I've never seen any movies that he's in. Yeah. Uh, but besides this one, obviously, but I, I feel like I need to see more of those cause there's lots of them. He was doing movies in the thirties. So at this yeah. point he'd been making movies for 20 years and he was, 
<laughs> apparently he was a big enough star that he'd been asked to do multiple Hollywood movies and he didn't want to because he didn't want to be like second fiddle to a lot of them to, to other characters. He didn't yeah. want to be like, here's this guy too. He wanted to be kind yeah. of front and center. And in this film he is enough so that he got top billing in Latin American countries. Yeah. And it's understandable. I mean, it's, it's weird for me to ever describe David Niven as a non-entity, Yeah, but he's a non-entity. Yeah, it's like of. he really is, you know, he's almost a MacGuffin. Like he, he's <laughs> not really, but like he gets everything started so that we can then watch uh pass part two, do a bunch of stuff, do a bullfight and climb on top of a train yeah. and, uh, 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 you know, ride an elephant and run away from Indians. And yeah. there's all manner of things that he does that are, that are more interesting. Well, and I know that in the 2004 remake uh, of the film, it's Jackie Chan, it's Jackie it? Chan yeah. and Steve Coogan. Hmm. Now, Steve Coogan, is someone that we know, but he, in 2004, people didn't really know him, but people knew Jackie no, Chan. So like Jackie Chan, right. the dynamic w was, was retained similar, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah. And, and yes, there are a ton of, uh, there are a ton of stars in this. You've got like Noel Coward, John Gilgood, Trevor Howard, Cesar Romero, Peter Lorre, George Raft, Marlena Dietrich, John Carradine, Buster Keaton talking Buster Keaton, boy. <laughs> Like, and he's, he's old enough that he wasn't immediately recognizable to be as Buster Keaton. And when he opened his mouth, less so <laughs> more than anything, I was just like, I was like, Hey, that guy looks like Buster Keaton. And then he started talking like, well, surely it isn't him. <laughs> he does too much because he doesn't talk. Um, um but yeah. then yeah, Andy divine, who it's always, it's always fun to <laughs> see and more specifically here. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody's in this movie. Yeah. And apparently this is one of the first movies that did that thing where they had a lot of cameos mm -hmm. and it shows because they're, they kind of don't under exam. They don't understand exactly what to do with these people. Yeah. Like the, the Frank Sinatra cameo is strange. They cut yeah. to the back of him as a piano player, like three different times and he doesn't turn around enough for you to go. Why do you keep showing us this piano player? And then he slowly turns yeah. around like to show his face to the camera. He might as well wave. Yeah. Hey folks. Yeah. Frank Sinatra here. <laughs> so there's a lot of moments like yeah. that when there, it, it doesn't add anything to the no. story. It's not like he, here's a small, like the Muppet movies, I feel like are ones to do that really sure. well. It's a, it's a part that has something to do with the story and adds something or maybe just tells one joke, Yeah, but they got a, they got a famous person to do it. Yeah. Whereas this one feels more like, what if we put a famous person in this scene? And it's like, sure. Uh, how about he sits at the piano and then he turns around? Like, uh, all right, sure. I think it's more effective when the, when the famous actors are like playing actual characters, like John Carradine. Yeah. You know, the character yes. is ridiculous, but he's a real character. He's doing something. And like all of the like steamboat people, like Vic, uh, Victor McLaughlin and uh, Andy Devine and various other people, like they're all notable actors playing actual characters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when it's just a, hey, what do you think of this? Yeah. I, or know. like the Peter Lorre one kind of feels like that too. It like, does. It, it feels like you've given that character too many lines because it's Peter Lorre. Exactly. And it's, and as someone who loves Peter Lorre tremendously, it's just like you have wasted Peter Lorre. Yeah. And that is a crime <laughs> because someone who looks like that and sounds like that. Oh, yeah. So many you things know. you can do with that. I was, I, I, I didn't remember it, but I had looked up a list or was looking at a list of the cameos before yeah. and as I was watching the movie. And when I saw that he's in there, I was looking forward to it and was disappointed. Yeah. Like the idea that, that the characters wake up to see Peter Laurie's face already. I'm like, all right, you got me. <laughs> I like this, but wouldn't it 
be more appropriate if he's a guy who's like going through their pockets. <laughs> yeah. He plays shady characters. So yeah. you cast him as a shady character. That's how it works. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it, George Raft, I think, was used OK. Um, he's just like a, a bouncer in a saloon. Mm. And and in that case, that's the thing. When they capitalize on a character's, yeah. uh, on an actor's image. Or Red Skelton was the same way in that one. Exactly. They capitalize on his image. And I think that's when it's at its most effective. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but this film is not about its characters. It's 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 about the spectacle. And the use of big actors is spectacle yeah. um, in this. Um, and also, you know, considering that, like, the largest voting body in the Academy is the actors <laughs> branch, uh, it definitely explains why... Sorry, it's one of the things that might explain why it won Best Picture, because um, the entire Screen Actors Guild was in it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but honestly, I think the spectacle, you know, for a long time, that's what I say a long time as though that's not still the case. But like spectacle is something that immediately puts your film above others uh, for a Best Picture nomination and win. Yeah. And with this film. It wasn't merely spectacle, but it was ambitious. They've shot around the world. Yeah. And they really did shoot in a lot of those places, which again was a big deal then because yeah. I mean, I'm trying to remember on the town was one of the first movies that actually shot like big Hollywood movies that shot mm -hmm. on location in New York. So that was oh, okay. a big deal. And, uh, hair. No, 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 no. It's all in New York. Uh, funny face, which came out the next year mm -hmm. was a big deal because they shot on location in Paris. So like at this point, in history, it was, it was, it stood out for your yeah. film to actually shoot on location a lot of these places, and they did with a lot of these. Not, not often with the actors. I'm, I'm not sure if David Niven ever left Hollywood. Oh yeah, no, but, he might uh, not have left his hotel room. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but there's definitely all these travel shoots. And I, yeah. watching the movie, I was like, I would have loved to be the second unit director on this movie. So it was like, sure, you didn't have any responsibility to like have all your props and your actors yeah. and your set design and all that stuff together. You just went out there to shoot cool things that would fit within the movie, like off the train in India yeah. or, or uh, from the, the uh, hot air balloon in France. And, and I also think that were I to see this in a theater, I still wouldn't be very compelled by it, but certainly some of that photography is really good yeah. and would look really great on a big screen. No, I, th know? I think so. Definitely. There are so many things that are in 2016 working against this film. Mm -hmm. Um, the, f again, the fact that it's a travel log and we don't need that anymore. Yeah. The fact that we already have things like planet earth. Yeah. And I think the fact that if somebody's going to watch it, they're going to watch it now on a smaller screen. Yeah. As big as their TV screen might get, that is definitely not the way this film was meant to be seen. Yeah. So like if you were to see this on IMAX, it might be kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, like, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's the only reason to see it is yeah. because you're now seeing the spectacle, which it was always meant to be. <laughs> when, when you think of it this way, it doesn't, it seem a lot like a, uh, like an IMAX special at like Disneyland or something where there's a thin storyline around it, but no yeah. one really cares about that. And you're like, all right, all right, let's, let's get past this. Let that be our entry point into yeah. this so we can actually see the stuff we want to see. Or like a Terrence Malick film. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you just had like, you know, Phileas Fogg being like mother, you know, <laughs> there, there was a lot of whispering throughout and less music. Ball fights. <laughs> Hong Kong. Um, 
so yeah uh so the film won best picture adapted screenplay which fascinates me uh this is not a written film cinematography which i get editing maybe music eh, i don't recall um really i feel like i noticed the music i don't remember the music i noticed the music one because it it does a thing where it tries to approximate the music of a lot of the different places, which sometimes oh, works okay. and sometimes feels gimmicky. Yeah. Um, as you know, now that you mentioned that, I think I, 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 that does sound familiar, especially when they hit India. Yeah. Uh, that is something I did notice in retrospect. And uh, another reason I noticed it was because the main theme from this film became a, uh, like a jukebox hit. It, oh, okay. They call it, it was called around the world. I, I know of a Sam cook version of it. That's where I heard it. And oh, okay. I, had, I had heard that song before. And in watching this, then I wondered like, which came first, the song or the movie. And it turns out the theme to the movie did. So hmm. That's interesting. So that's its lasting legacy. I, I guess so. Um, so the film was nominated for best director, best art direction, best costume design. Um, so, so let's just focus on picture. Looking at the other best picture nominees, you've got friendly persuasion. Haven't seen it. You have giant, which I have seen the King and I haven't seen it. 10 commandments. Haven't seen it. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that I'm one of the few people in the world that hasn't seen the 10 commandments. Yeah. Um, but I have seen giant and I think Giant's great. Giant's pretty good, yeah. I feel um, like that's the better film. It's weird that there are, like, this was clearly a year for spectacle because yes. uh, I believe Giant King and I and Ten Commandments, Giant and Ten Commandments are both over three hours, I think. Uh, yeah, I think so. And King and I is long. It might, I don't know if it's that long, but I'm going to look that up now, actually. It's well, probably and, at least two and a half hours. Well, and even like even if it's not it's heavily art directed it's a period film it's a musical it's it's a a distant location yeah so yeah this is definitely that um with giant of these uh of these spectacular films being like the most uh pared down because it focuses you know merely on texas uh but um yeah, Giant is a film. Uh, we I saw it, uh, you know, many years ago, and a lot of it actually has stayed in my mind. And uh, we actually watched a clip of it in my film criticism class this quarter. And uh, and in in watching, I was like, this is a this is a solid film. Like that's mm-hmm. a, that actually is the film that won best best director. Oh yeah, um, the George Stevens. Uh, yes, I believe so. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and just like it's very sharply written, mm-hmm. um, uh, very well acted, and it's just a and and socially conscious in a way that I think works well. Yeah, that doesn't feel preachy or yeah. forced. Yeah. It feels natural based on the characters, as, you know, as written and as played by these actors. Yeah, and so yeah, I really like Giant, but that's the only one I can speak to here. Which have have you seen? Um, I've seen the last three. I haven't seen friendly persuasion. Okay. You know what? I may not have seen the King and I, that's one of those ones that I've definitely seen parts of yeah. and it's part of the, you know, cultural consciousness. So yeah, I know a lot about it, but I, I don't know if I've ever sat down and watched the whole thing. Okay. Two um, hours and 13 minutes, by the way, I looked it up. All right. Uh, which is still f- kind of long. Mm. Um, but, uh, so of the films that you've seen, you would probably go with giant. I think I'd go yeah. with giant too. Yeah. So let's look at uh, the other notable 1956 releases. Good year for genre, I'd say. Hmm. You've got stuff like uh, Bob Le Flambeau, uh, Forbidden Planet, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Killing, um, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And then I think 
the one that jumps out here for me is the searchers. I think, yeah, probably. I think that's the one that has probably made the biggest cultural impact, except maybe mm-hmm. the 10 commandments. Yeah. Um, but even then 10 commandments made the biggest cultural impact. I think searchers made the biggest film impact. Yeah. And that's one people still talk about a lot today. And that's one that kind of defied some ideas of that genre, yeah. which stood out. And it was, what's interesting is that, it's a film that defied certain ideas as made by one of the men that defined the genre exactly, and starring one of the guys that defined yes. the genre. Yeah. So the fact that you have John Ford and John Wayne making the stage this coach film, combo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, saying like, Oh, hang on. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe these early settlers were insane. <laughs> um, so yeah. And the searchers is a film that I have only, loved more and more every time I see it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but I'm also a big fan of the killing. I really like canal the, uh, Andre Vajda film, which I haven't seen. I need to see that forbidden planet's pretty good too. I do like forbidden planet quite a bit. Um, Oh, invasion of the body snatchers is great too. That's which I actually never saw that version of it. I've only seen the 1970s. Oh really? The original is great. Um, and then uh, the theater recently, I think, what was that for? Yeah. I don't know. Halloween, maybe, maybe, uh, I do like, uh, Moby Dick. I enjoy that film. Um, is that the one with Gregory Peck? Yeah. I haven't seen that one. Uh, it's pretty good. Um, and I'll go ahead and, uh, because I like to talk about this company as much as I can. It was recently released on Blu-ray by Twilight Time. Oh, okay. Uh, Twilight Time is a super awesome company that does like 4k, um, transfers of, movies great and not great and then it will press i believe either three or five thousand copies and when they run out they run out oh wow so and i i have a few of the and they have sometimes they have minimal special features other times it's it's pretty good um but yeah i have uh richard the third i have titus i have american buffalo i have jane Eyre, um judgment at nuremberg they've they've put out some really good stuff um so check out twilight time because they and they just did uh, moby dick but um hmm. Yeah, looking at at all of these movies, um, I think I'd probably lean towards The Searchers, uh, as I said, um, and and I'm fine with that. I don't think this is necessarily the strongest year. There are a lot of really good movies. Yeah, yeah, there are. But as far as best picture type movies, uh, not the strongest year. No, and you can see the type of thing that people wanted for best picture by what, what were the nominees. Yeah. I'm starting to wonder if maybe... <laughs> Uh, maybe if someone out there wants to figure out the, uh, the math on this, but I wonder if the fifties is the longest decade, like the films together oh. are the longest. Cause you've got this, you've got Ben Hur, you've got bridge on the river Kwai. You got a lot of long ones this year. Sixties are pretty long too. There's some big ones, but fifties maybe what I look at, what, what I see when I look at this is just like the Academy's like, all right, we gave the best picture to Marty, <laughs> but now it's time. Now our time has come. Now it's time to employ some people. I wonder if there was backlash from Marty. <laughs> um, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we, when we get to it, but uh, I'm not sure if I'd say it's backlash, but it's more just like, it, it almost felt like almost like tokenism where they're just like, 
All right, we showed that we can think outside the box and give a nice little character study, best picture. Yeah. But back to business. Um, <laughs> this but, is Hollywood after all. <laughs> absolutely. I have to assume they're all chewing cigars as they talk about it. <laughs> and this movie starts with a, sh- a scene of a rocket taking off <laughs> that they filmed for this movie. Sure. That was not stock photography. They, they they filmed a rocket taking off specifically for this movie. Yeah, that's another thing. Edward R. Murrow is in this yeah, film. Yeah, at the beginning of the I totally forgot that. Like when it opened up, I was like, what did I, I thought I had done the wrong thing. Yeah. And then he starts talking about Jules Verne and I'm like, this is probably right. Then it cuts to that rocket taken off and I'm like, I don't know what this is. And then we never see him again. It feels like it should have been a framing device, right? Yeah. (laughs) It feels like it should have been cut off entirely. Yeah. They paid for that rocket footage (laughs) and it's going in there. Yeah. The, the movie, as much as I might say about it being a travelogue and, and trying to understand it from the perspective then, like it really does feel like just a kitchen sink kind of thing where they just threw everything in and just like spectacle f- for its own sake. Yeah. But by the way, speaking of spectacle, one thing we didn't talk about is the uh, ending title sequence, which is that Saul Bass sequence. Yeah. That's which is pretty great. That's actually, fun. I, I like, like that, that a lot. Um, and I mean, Saul Bass is great at that sort of thing. I yeah. love the opening titles to it's a mad, 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 mad world, which is a very yeah. similar type of thing. Well, um, and just, and you know, anatomy of a murder and, mm-hmm. you know, psycho and, uh, is vertigo him? Did he do vertigo as well? I know it's a, it's a different type of opening title sequence, but, um, I don't remember. I if can't he was picture it in my head now. It might've been, but, um, but yeah, just the, the role that he played, he's somebody I'd like to do more research into as a, as a figure of Hollywood. Yeah. Cause he played a big role in movies that no, very few people, sorry, like film students would be like, Oh, Saul Bass, he's the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think anybody, you know, even casual fans of psycho, I don't think they would think like, Oh yeah. That opening credit sequence is great. Yeah. And, uh, this is a film I can tell was well storyboarded. Like nobody's going to say that. <laughs> I wonder if, wonder if he's someone you could do a, uh, an outline of on BP. That's not a bad I idea. I was thinking that yes, yeah. just now. Um, but yeah, he's somebody who like helped shape some of Hollywood's like b- best movies, but not in a way that people would, you know, there's no Oscar for someone like him. Right. Um, and so that tends to be how a lot of people think is if, if you can't get an award for it, what's the point? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, I think we, as always, we should leave on a conversation about Saul Bass. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, if somebody said they wanted to see around the world in 80 days, what would you say? I mean, if you got some time on your hands, like there's, there's definitely interesting things in it. I, yeah. I think some of the, some of the spectacle, some of the stuff they did with the photography then is still cool. Yeah. And, and that they did it then is cool. I, I, and it's interesting to see content floss because he's such a, yeah. such a figure in Latin American film, but we, you can't even find his Like I want to see some of his movies. I don't know how to find them yeah. without watching them on YouTube in Spanish. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's those going for it. Uh, and again, the completionist thing beyond that, it, it is very unfulfilling story-wise. Uh, the characters are not very interesting. If you want something that is engaging on that level, it's not that. I think that's the thing. It's, it's worth watching through like a, an historical lens. Yeah. Uh, there are movies that there are older movies are movies from, you know, 1956 that you can watch now and be maybe not just as engaged, but you can be engaged on, on a, on a personal level, on an emotional level, on an artistic level. This is, you know, this is not that this is one where, like you said, 
oh, Quantum Floss, like he was like the the biggest actor in the world, but people don't know about him because of where he came from. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's looking at it in an historical context and then looking at it as a travel log, looking at it as, oh, this is what they were able to do at this time. And isn't that neat? All mm-hmm. of that is like very much appreciating it in its own time. It, it doesn't necessarily translate now, which I think makes it kind of an inessential film. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if you go watch uh, Battleship Potemkin, some of those images are still very stirring and, yeah. and really elicit a reaction. Yeah. Um, and yet it can still be seen in historical context. So, uh, so I would say it's a fairly inessential movie. It's more for completionists and it's more for, I'd say film historians. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I think we'll go ahead and leave it there once again. Hopefully everybody has a, a happy new year. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.